Well, have you I, I, have you guys heard of um, male pattern blindness? I know you have. You've all heard of male pattern blindness. This is let me give you a, an example from my I'll use myself as an example. So I go to the refrigerator, right? And I open the door and I look in and I can't find the butter. So what do I do? I say, honey, where's the butter? She replies, it's in the refrigerator. No, it's not. I'm looking in the refrigerator. To which she replies, it's on the top shelf. No, I'm looking on the top shelf. You must have used it all. We probably need to go buy some more butter. No, it's on the top shelf. I put it there 10 minutes ago. It's not there. I am looking in the refrigerator on the top shelf and it is not there. To which then she gets up, gets interrupted from whatever important thing it was she was doing, comes in, takes the butter off the top shelf and hands it to me because it was right in front of me. Right. You know that, don't you? Ladies, you, you, you know that one really, really well. Us guys are probably immune to it. That is uh, male pattern blindness. There's actually an official name for it, and I forgot what that name is, but there's actually a, a scientific name and all sorts of scientific theories as to why it, it occurs. But the bottom line is this. Oftentimes, we miss something that is right in front of us. Oftentimes, there are things that are staring us plainly in the face, and we fail to see it. And this is especially true when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is evident who he is. It is evident what he has done. But oftentimes, even as believers, we miss the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's because we're busy looking at something else. We're busy looking at our own perception of what we think Jesus ought to be and what we believe Jesus ought to be doing. And having that belief, we're so busy looking at players bouncing balls, we miss the gorilla walking across the stage. We miss what is so obvious about Jesus Christ, and therefore um, we end up having difficulty with understanding who Jesus is. And sometimes Christ does not always fit our theology. And when Christ does not fit our theology, too oftentimes what we do is we, we change Christ to fit our preconceived ideas. I'm going to encourage you today that our goal then is not to change God or the person of Christ to fit our preconceived ideas, but rather read God's word, draw out what God's word is saying and change our attitude and belief so that it conforms with what God has revealed in his word and through his son. So here's where we're going to go today. Let me, well, let me give us a little bit of review so that we kind of understand how we got to this place. And this is still connected back. Our, our text today is still connected back to, to um, Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, or some people call it the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus made a claim for exclusive loyalty, that his disciples are to have an exclusive loyalty towards him. That was a quite the claim to say that I deserve or I am worthy of exclusive loyalty. This is where he said it. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other words, to call Jesus Lord has the idea then of doing what he says. 
Many of us, nobody here, I think, can make that statement. Why do you call me pastor, pastor, and don't do what I say? It's a little bit arrogant, but Jesus comes along and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then here's what he says. He says, the one who hears my word and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a foundation. So when the storms come, the house remains uh, well established. It does not collapse. In other words, he is saying... That my word is such that you can build your life on it. So Jesus makes this claim to exclusive loyalty towards him. And then he backs it up. He backs it up in in, uh, Luke chapter 7 by healing uh, a a centurion's um, servant who had been sick. And now last week we saw how he raised um, a widow's son from the dead. And so picking that up, Jesus has called his disciples to exclusive loyalty. He has demonstrated his worth by performing two miracles. And now by preview, this is where we're going to go today. Can we be certain of the worth of Jesus? In other words, is Jesus the one who we should be following? After all, there's a lot of voices out there. Saying, follow me, or do it this way, or do it that way. Is Jesus' claim to exclusive loyalty one that we can commit ourselves to? And how about when Jesus does not fit our perceptions of what we think he ought to be? Perhaps we think that Jesus ought to be keeping us healthy, happy, and wise, and wealthy, and all of those things. And then all of a sudden we lose our job. Will you continue to follow him or will you doubt his words? Will you end up doubting his words that uh, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all, all these things will be added to you? When all these things are not being added to you, will you doubt or will you not doubt? Will you continue exclusive loyalty or not? That's one of the places we're going to go today. Another thing we want to deal with is this issue of doubt. Is it okay to doubt? Can we doubt God? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, which is my plug for Wednesday night, so you guys can come on Wednesdays at 6.30. But we we talked a little bit about this, and today what we're going to do is we're going to consider two doubters. One, John the Baptist, who doubted, and two, the next group is the Pharisees and the, the lawyers Uh, the scribes who also doubted. And we're going to look at two groups or a person and a group who doubted and how they dealt with uncertainty about Christ. And I'll tell you this, their uncertainty arose because they had a wrong impression about, they were busy looking at bouncing balls and not gorillas walking across the stage. They were staring right at the butter and missed it. Not because the butter wasn't there. Not because the butter wasn't clear. Not because the gorilla wasn't evident. But their eyes were so focused on the wrong thing that they missed the glory of Christ dwelling in their midst. John dealt with it properly. The scribes and the Pharisees dealt with it incorrectly. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, read our text today. We're going to begin in chapter 7, verses 18. We'll read through chapter, or I'm sorry, through verse 35. This is God's holy and inerrant word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John 
calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent to us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, and yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And this is, this ends the reading of God's inspired word. And so we begin this section of the book of Luke with a deputation from John. You need to remember, John at this time is in prison. We know that from the parallel account in Matthew. John is in prison. He has um, been in prison for condemning Herod and his uh, uh, immoral relationship. And uh, so he's in prison. He's going to end up uh, being murdered or executed uh, for his crime. And he has this question, is Jesus the one? Or should we seek another? And so there's a deputation that, that he sends out and he gets two of his disciples saying, here's what you need to do. Go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And for many people, many Bible students, they really struggle with this idea of John having this element of doubt. Some people think, A, it's an embarrassment. And how can somebody of say, such great stature, this have doubts about the person of Jesus Christ. What, a, what an embarrassing thing to include. But first of all, that helps us understand that uh, the truthfulness of Scripture because the authors put in embarrassing things. The second thing, people say, well, it's just illogical. Somebody like John who had declared, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he said it with such authority and such power and such conviction. How can he now say, are you the one? Here is the guy who said, behold, one comes after me whose 
I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. And I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. That's the one who's saying, I'm not so certain anymore. People consider that illogical or an embarrassment. I'll be honest with you. I have no problem with this passage of text. I have no problem with a great man or woman of God struggling. We should not be surprised because many great people in Scripture doubted. Abraham, certainly, and his wife, Sarah. Both of them had their issues. Elijah, perhaps one of the greatest prophets who ever walked this earth, had trouble, had difficulty. Sometimes we talk about doubting Thomas, but we forget about faithful Thomas. Remember prior to his doubting? When they were getting ready to go uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, they're outside of, of, uh, of Israel. They're, they're across on the eastern side of the Jordan um, because basically people were looking to kill him. And this convoy comes from, uh, uh, from uh, Martha and Mary saying, you need to come and heal Lazarus. And Jesus says, well, we're going to go over there and we're going to heal Lazarus. And the question is kind of like, well, that's, if we go back, won't we get arrested? And here's what Thomas says. Let's go and die with him. I don't know about you. That's a pretty faithful statement. Let's go die with him. Now, later he turns around and says, I won't believe. Why? Because I don't I've never seen a dead man alive again. I've never seen a resurrection before. By the way, he had seen resuscitations. We talked about that last week. I have never seen what you're saying. And so he says, I won't believe great men and women of God throughout history have doubted because circumstances put us in a place that are like, going, I don't know anymore. And John is in prison. Remember, John has an understanding about what Messiah is going to do. Messiah is going to come and squash those wicked Roman, the, the, the wicked government of Rome, quash it and raise up a new kingdom, one that is glorious and one that honors God. And now John is in a Roman prison. This does not fit his theology. This is bouncing balls with this is not the gorilla walking across the stage. He's missing the gorilla walking across the stage. He's got going, wait a second. My understanding of the way things are supposed to happen is this. Christ is supposed to come and overthrow all of this corruption. And now here I am imprisoned by the very people that I believe Christ is to overthrow. And so now he has this question. I don't know. Am I right? Am I going in the right direction? Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? To me, this is a perfectly reasonable situation. I don't know about you. I'll just be very transparent with you. I've doubted. Some of you may have much greater faith than me and you've never doubted the person of Jesus Christ. But I've wondered, is he worth following? After all, it's a lot easier not to follow him. Much easier. Much easier to go the way of my own desires and passions. Much easier. Much simpler. Is it worth it? Well, John doubts well because John has this question. Are you the one or should we look for another? And I suppose that John could have sought out an answer in in a variety of different venues, but 
He didn't. He could have gone to the Jewish commentaries. He could have gone to the religious leaders. He could have gone to his disciples. He could have gone to a whole host of other ways of discovering whether or not Jesus was the one or should we look for another. But John handles his doubt well. John goes to Jesus. And folks, when we have questions, when we're uncertain, we go to the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He has revealed himself. And folks, when we have questions, when we have concerns, yes, we can seek out commentaries and you can seek out your pastor and you can seek out all of your friends. Those are those are means that God has given us. But primarily, God has given us his word. We need to go to him. John is ready to hear what God has to say and submit to what God has to say. Too often times we go to God's word, we read it and we say, I don't like it. And therefore, and then we stand in judgment upon God's word. Well, I don't like that. And so if that's the way God is, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. How dare any of us stand in judgment upon God's word? And I love how Jesus responds. So these disciples come to John. I'm sorry, they come to Jesus and they say, are you the one or should we look for another? I suppose Jesus could have said, why, yes, yes, I am indeed the one. And no, you should not look for another. That would have been a perfectly good answer. It would have been authoritative. If Jesus says, why, yes, I'm the one, it's authoritative. But I love what Jesus does. He does something different. Actually, he does something more powerful. Verse 21 says, And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who, who are blind he bestowed sight. So get the scenario here. Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? Stay right there for a second. Or actually, come follow me. Blind man, be healed. Lame man, get up and walk. Possessed man, you're free. Leprous man, you're cleansed. How about that? Now, go tell John what you've seen and heard. By the way, I want you to understand that these are not just miracles that are unconnected or disconnected from the person of who Jesus is. These miracles speak directly to John's questions. They are not just random miracles saying, look, Jesus is a miracle worker. These are specific miracles that Messiah would do. And they come out of God's word. So by healing the people, God or Jesus is referring John back to God's word. John was a man of God's word. And when he heals the blind and when he heals the lame and when he casts out demons and when he cleanses lepers, he is speaking directly of what the word of God said Messiah would do. And you can read these passages of text in Isaiah chapter 35, 5 and 6, Isaiah 29, 18. These are all in your notes, by the way. Isaiah 26, 19 and Isaiah 61, 1. His actions are perfectly aligned with God's word. So here's the thing John's 
messengers, go back and tell him what you have seen and heard that Jesus has done exactly what Messiah was supposed to do. So if you have any doubts, if you have any concerns, he is not just some random miracle worker. He is the one who is doing exactly what God said Messiah would do. Have no doubts, John. Read God's word. Be reminded of God's word. And God's word will inform us of what God has spoken and what God has truthfully spoken. And so by doing these things, Jesus points to himself as the culmination of the divine plan that all of the promises of Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is no reason to doubt. Here's the thing. He is right in front of you. How can you miss it? He was born in Bethlehem of the, of the tribe of David. He, out of Egypt, I, I called my son. He was raised and called a Nazarene. He comes and does the works of Messiah. John, that should settle all doubt. And Jesus concludes this particular section with these words. It's a beatitude, actually. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To be offended, this idea uh, is to trap or to ensnare. And here, uh, blessed is the one who is not ensnared by me. Sometimes Jesus acts outside of our theological prisms. He does what we would have never expected. I thought I was going to have a nice, perfectly smooth life. Or how about this? Nobody can forgive me of my sins. And lo and behold, Jesus comes along and by grace does what you thought was impossible. It's all right before you. How can you miss it? It's butter on the top shelf. It's gorillas walking across the stage. You can't miss it. It's right there. And blessed are you who don't stumble over Christ. Folks, Jesus is the issue. Jesus then, the, the disciples of John go back to John. And now, John, now Jesus speaks to the crowd that, is, that witnessed this thing. And I love, this is just something that in my own personal prayer over this text was, was such a blessing. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. And I love what he says about, I love what he doesn't say about John. Well, now that his disciples are gone, can you believe that, John? After all I said and done, and we're cousins, and he still doesn't believe? I mean, come on, you guys, can you really believe all that? He doesn't say that. He affirms John. He declares John as a great man, publicly affirming who John is. I don't know what the day of judgment will look like. I pray it looks something like this. For those of us who follow Christ. That despite our doubts, despite our inconsistencies, despite our failures and flaws, despite our stumbling here and there over trying to live out the Christian life, that when we stand before the Lord, it's not like, I can't believe you did that. But ah, my servant, well done, publicly affirming. I hope it looks something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if it does. 
And so he affirms who John is. And he says this, he says, he's speaking to the crowds. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing, they live in luxury and live in luxury. They're in the king's court. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, even even more than a prophet. So what did you go out and to to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This has been understood in a variety of different ways, but I think... When, when I consider the entirety of what Jesus is saying, it seems like John is saying, what did you go out into the desert to see? Desert vegetation? A reed blown by the wind? Is that what you went out to see? Did you go out to the desert just for its mere scenery? Is that what you went out for? Or how about this? Did you go out to the desert to see a well-dressed man? Of course not. Well-dressed men aren't in the desert. They're in five-star hotels. They're on the red carpet. They're not out in the desert. What did you go out in the desert to see? Did you just go out there to enjoy the scenery? Did you go out there for something you know that isn't going to be there? No, but what did you go out and see? You went out to see a prophet. What drew you was more than scenery or fashion. It was a message and not just any message. It was the presence of a prophet with a word from God. That's what drew you out into the wilderness. What drew you out into the wilderness wasn't some well-dressed man. What drew you into the wilderness was a prophet who was speaking the word of God. That's what got you out there. The presence of a prophet with a word from God. This was the one who Moses, the one who Isaiah, the one who Malachi said was going to come and precede the Messiah once again. We have Jesus is declaring who he is. He's making it clear. It's butter on the top shelf. It's plain to everybody. Don't you realize I was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of David. I went to Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I grew up as a Nazarene. And there is now a messenger sent before me and I'm doing works of Messiah. Can it be any more clear? How in the world are you missing the butter on the top shelf? This is so abundantly evident. I'm doing, I'm fulfilling every, every word of God regarding what and who Messiah would be. Why would anybody miss it? I ask my unbelieving friends, we ponder that often. How is it that my unbelieving friends do not see the beauty and glory of Christ? It's so evident. It's so obvious. If you miss the gorilla walking across the stage from here on out, every time you watch that video, you will never miss that gorilla ever again. Ever. Why? Because you've seen it. It's so abundantly clear. It's also abundantly clear when somebody in the black t-shirt leaves the stage, you'll never, ever miss that again. Your eyes have been opened. You've been let in on it. Spirit opens our eyes. How in the world can you miss what is so obvious? Then he says this very interesting and somewhat puzzling statement. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's an amazing thing. As great as John was, a citizen in God's kingdom has much greater privilege. That's an awesome thought. 
Well, look, there's a couple of passages of text that we should probably read that help us understand this. And I know it's kind of small print, so I'll just read it, but I thought I'd put it up there. It says, Matthew 13, 16 and 17 says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For I, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying, blessed are you. Why? For millennium, prophets and people have longed to see Messiah and they never saw it, but you see it. But even more, it says this, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, concerning this salvation, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you and through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. John never saw those glories. John never saw the cross, except in shadow, except in type. He never saw the cross. He never saw the crucifixion. He never saw the resurrection. And blessed are you. You've seen what John never saw and what prophets and angels long to see. They never saw that fulfilled grace. That was never. They just saw it in shadow. They saw it by faith. But they never saw it. Sometimes we think, oh, if I could just live, I'd love to see that Red Sea part. I would love to be in at the time of Moses to see that. I would have loved to have been around when Elijah was doing all the Elijah things. Oh, folks, what a glorious day we live. We live in a day when Christ is resurrected and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and through us. We have Christ in us. Blessed are you. Because as great as John was, he never experienced, he never saw, he never had the things which you have, oh folks, we should take the days in which we live with great praise and thanksgiving because God has given us incredible things. As great as John the Baptist was, he never saw the grace that was revealed to you and I. Wow. What a great thing. Oh, blessed is he who doesn't stumble over this. Folks, as great as John was, a citizen, the lowliest citizen in God's kingdom in this age, has even greater privilege. Daryl Bach says, The kingdom's presence elevates everyone who shares in it to a new status. Those who know Jesus are greater than the prophets. Another commentator says, our Lord's meaning in using this expression appears to be simply this. He declares that religious light of the least disciple who lived after his crucifixion and resurrection would be far greater than that of John the Baptist who died before these mighty events took place. The weakest believing hearer of Paul would understand things by the light of Christ's death on the cross, which John the Baptist could never have explained. I love that. The weakest believer. Hearing the words of Paul, by the light of Christ's death on the cross, John the Baptist could have never even conceived it. Great 
as that holy man was in faith and courage, the humblest Christian would, in one sense, be greater than he. Greater in grace and works, he certainly could not be, but beyond doubt, he would be greater in privilege and knowledge. Folks, we are a privileged group of people. We have the written word of God disseminated. I mean, not just got books, we got it in digital form. We've got the Spirit of God. Jesus, Jesus said, it's better that I go away. If I don't go away, for when I go away, I'm going to send one just like me, another helper, one just like me, and he will guide you in all truth. Folks, we have the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. We now have these two groups, two groups of people. The first group is... When the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, once again we see Luke pointing out the tax collectors. He loves to, to highlight the tax collectors because they are an especially condemned group of sinners. I mean, there are sinners because Luke often uses that term. Sinners and tax collectors. And here we have the people and the tax collectors do what? Declare God is just. That is, they declared God just. And notice this relationship to being having been baptized with the baptism of John. We do not declare that baptism saves a person, but they submitted to God in repentance in anticipation of Messiah coming. Those who recognized their need for God's cleansing, which was evidenced by their submission to baptism, realized that God is just. God is just to condemn me of my sins, and God is not only just... He is the justifier who will free me from my sins. Oh, God is just. But the religious elite, it says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In other words, they saw no need for repentance. They saw no need to bring forth fruits of repentance. They saw, listen, all of that stuff that John's doing to prepare you, yourself for the Messiah, that's for you unwashed masses. But for us religious elite, we're already pretty good. We're doing just fine. We've got it figured out with God and we will go it on our own. We will attain our righteousness by our own goodness. After all, we're experts in the law of Moses. We don't need some filthy prophet like John telling us stuff. We've got it figured out. The other people said, we don't got it figured out. We need forgiveness. We need to be cleansed. Lord God, have mercy upon us. They declared God just. The others were left unjustified. And then Jesus goes on and he tells this rather interesting story. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. First of all, we should note the derision um, in this statement. What is this generation like? Basically, he's saying they're like petulant, selfish children. There is some derision here. What's this generation like? They're like unsatisfied children. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Basically, it's this. We don't want to sing a happy song. Okay, well, let's sing a sad song. We don't want to sing a sad song. 
What do you want to do? Nothing will satisfy them. Come and dance with us. Oh, we don't dance. Well, then come and mourn with us. Oh, we're not going to do that. Never satisfied, never happy, never receding what God has. They, they, they see John, and John was an austere man. Well, John has a demon. Jesus came in joy. He's a drunkard. No matter what we do, Jesus is saying, no matter what is presented to you, you will not be satisfied. When when John comes being bold and fiery, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, you say he has a demon. And when Jesus comes eating and drinking with sinners, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you will not believe you say that I'm a drunkard and you say that I'm a drunkard and I eat with sinners. You will never be happy. You will never be satisfied. It doesn't matter what the messenger looks like. It doesn't matter how the message comes to you. You will not receive it. And here's an issue for us, folks. The problem is this. Well, here's what the problem is not. The problem is usually not the message, nor is it the messenger. So oftentimes, we, the church, to its shame, has fallen for the lie that if we will just change the message, people will love us. And in the 60s, we saw the whole free love movement and many churches said, well, if you just change the message and accept the culture, it, we will be successful. If you don't, we will become irrelevant and we will die. And here's what happened to those churches. They became irrelevant and died. And the churches that continued to preach forth God's position, <clears throat> basically the culture was saying, love the one you're with. And today we're in the same thing. We're hearing the same message. Church, you need to become relevant to culture or you will die. And if you don't adopt cultural mores such as love the one you're with, you will become irrelevant and be shamed out of existence. The problem with such a view is it has absolutely no grounding in Scripture. Here's what Jesus says. I have, no, I have no fear for the church whatsoever because Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. It's my church. Not, not me, John. Jesus is saying it's my church. I establish it. I make it. I created it. I will sustain it. And the gates of hell will not prevail. We may end up underground. We may end up in small enclaves. Meeting privately, we may not be meeting in public in a nice building like this, I don't know. But as far as the church prospering and growing and being what God has called it to be until the day that He returns and calls us home, I have no doubt whatsoever. My issue, then, is it's not the message, nor is it the messenger. What was John's message? This austere fiery man. He came on the scene and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Do you know what Jesus said? You know, the joyful, loving Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. 
And you do know what the very first sermon after Pentecost was, don't you? Read it. Peter said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The message is the same, folks. People rejected it regardless of the messenger. John presented it one way, Jesus another, Peter another. It was still rejected. The problem is not the messenger or the message, not usually anyways. The problem is that men's hearts are hard and you can play the flute and they will reject it. And you can play a dirge and they will reject it because their heart is hardened and they want nothing to do with the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. The natural heart of man hates God. The carnal man, the Bible says, is at enmity with God, and you will always find an excuse for unbelief. Always. I had zillions of them, and so did you prior to coming to Christ. People will say, oh, well, I don't, you know, that whole Christian thing. The doctrine of judgment is too harsh, and how can God be such a harsh God like that and have this message of judgment. On the other hand, you'll have somebody say, I can't come to Christ because I can't accept grace. We played a dirge of God's judgment and you won't accept it. And we play the flute of the joyous grace and you won't accept it. Grace is too John's too exclusive, but Jesus is too inclusive. And in the end, man is left in his sin. The problem is not the message and usually not the messenger, though sometimes. The bottom line, folks, is we cannot please everybody. And so here's what we do. We preach the gospel that saves. We do it to the best of our ability and we do it under the inspiration and the power and entrusting in the Holy Spirit. There are many ways to share the gospel. Jaime has done classes on how we share the gospel We've in our in our orientation on church membership, we talk about ways of sharing the gospel, whether you adopt those ways or just tell people about the gospel. But tell the gospel that saves. People are going to reject it. Yeah, probably. And so what do you do? Tell it again. Wipe off your. Dust yourself off and get up and do it again. Can't please everybody, but share the gospel. And then Jesus goes on and he says, and wisdom is vindicated by her children. It's kind of an interesting statement. We are not to be offended about how God brings about his plans. Even when we doubt, we are to go to God's word. Wisdom's children sees the path of God, and they walk in it. A wise course of action will always prove to be wise, and a wise course of action will bear fruit. And here's the day. Those of you who repent and turn to Christ and call upon his name and follow after him, you may be ridiculed in this day and age, but wisdom is vindicated by her children, and one day you will stand before a holy God who will say, well done, and you will be vindicated Because you walked the wise path. You built, like the wise man, your house upon a foundation that when the storm came, it did not collapse. Even if the storm of martyrdom comes, it does not collapse because even in that day, you will be welcomed into the presence of a most holy God. He says, man, I'm glad you're here. Been waiting for you. Come on in. Wisdom will be vindicated by her children. So I'll conclude with this.
Sometimes the truth is right in front of us. Sometimes what is what is real is so obvious it's impossible to miss. Sometimes reality is a gorilla walking across the stage or butter on the top shelf. I don't mean to reduce the glories of Christ to something so trivial. It's just simply an example. But here's the thing, folks. The person of Christ, who he is and what he has done, is so plain. It is so simple. He has done everything. He's fulfilled everything that God has said Messiah would do. Ultimately, that he would die upon a cross for our sins, bearing God's wrath on our behalf. He would be laid in a tomb for three days, but death would not be able to keep him down. And on the third day, he would rise again from the dead gloriously. And he now is the first fruits of all those who rise from the dead. And if you are in Christ, and if you have died with Christ and crucified yourself with Christ, And the truth of the matter is this. You also will be raised from the dead on the last day and you will reign eternally with him. God right now is fitting us for heaven. And when you doubt, where do you go? Go to God's word. Go to Jesus Christ and I guarantee you he will affirm you and uphold you and build you up and strengthen you and enable enable you to do what you thought was impossible to do, to endure what you thought was impossible to to endure. And I'll, my, my final statement, really, this will be my final statement. Well, not really. You know what happens. You know what happens when a preacher says that. It just reminded me of when Jesus preached a very fiery sermon, a very controversial sermon. And the text tells us that all his disciples left, or many of his disciples left him. And he turns to his disciples and he says, what about you? Are you going to go also? And Peter, man, when Peter got it right, he got it right. He said this, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. Folks, that's where we are. That's where I am. I pray that that's where this church is. Where else would we go? Only Christ has the words of life. When we doubt, when we struggle, when we're not certain, are you the one? Is this worth doing? We go to Christ because only he has the words of eternal life. And from there, we will be lifted up and strengthened and comforted and emboldened and made able to stand. Let's stand and let's pray. And then we'll sing. Oh, Father, you are so good to us. You've given us a place to, to come and worship. And you, you've given us a place to worship, Lord God. You've given us a, a peaceful setting, Lord God. All by your grace. So, Father, we come to you. We bring our doubts to you today. We bring our wonder. Bring our uncertainty. And we come to you and say, here it is, Lord. Are you the one? We know with certainty that you will certainly demonstrate that you are worthy of being called Lord, Lord, and doing what you say. So have mercy upon us, Father God. Strengthen us in your word. Strengthen us in fellowship. 
Help us to be united. Help us to love one another, Lord God, and so be your church. In Christ's name, amen.